CD 10. Lord Albert Salachi didn't much like parties. There was too much politics, and he particularly didn't like this one because it meant he was in the same room as Lord Winder, a man who deep down he believed to be a bad sort. In his personal vocabulary there was no greater condemnation. What made it worse was that while seeking to avoid him he also had to try at the same time to avoid Lord Venturi. Their families cordially detested one another. Lord Albert wasn't sure now what event in history had caused the rift, but it must have been important, obviously, otherwise it would be silly to go on like this. Had the Salachi and the Venturi been hill clans, they would have been a feudin and a fightin. Since they were two of the city's leading families, they were chillingly, viciously, icily polite to each other whenever social fate forced them together. And right now his careful orbit of the less dangerously political areas of the damn party had brought him face to face with Lord Charles Venturi. It was bad enough having to campaign with the fellow, he thought, without being forced to talk to him over some rather inferior wine, but currently the party's tides offered no way of escape without being impolite. And, curiously, upper-class etiquette in Ankh-Morpork held that, while you could snub your friends any time you felt like it, it was the height of bad form to be impolite to your worst enemy. Then, Turim he said, raising his glass a carefully calculated fraction of an inch. Salachi, said Lord Venturi, doing the same thing. This is a party, said Albert. Indeed, I see you are standing upright. Indeed, so are you, I see. Indeed, indeed. On that subject, I note many others are doing the same thing. "'which is not to say that the horizontal position "'does not have its merits when it comes to, uh, for example, sleeping,' said Albert. "'Quite so. Obviously that would not be done here.' "'Oh, indeed, indeed.' "'The Salachi and the Venturi made a point on occasions like this "'to talk only about things on which there was no possibility of disagreement.' Given the history of the two families, this had become a very small number of things. A brisk lady in a magnificent purple dress advanced across the ballroom floor, her smile travelling in front of her. "'Lord Salachi,' she said, proffering her hand, "'I hear you have been doing sterling work defending us from the mob.' His lordship, on social automatic pilot, bowed stiffly. He wasn't used to forward women, and this one was all forward. However, all safe topics of conversation with the Venturi had been exhausted. "'I fear you have the advantage of me, madam,' he murmured. "'I certainly expect so,' said madam, giving him such a radiant smile that he didn't analyse her actual words. "'And who is this imposing military gentleman, a comrade in arms?' Lord Salachi floundered. He'd been brought up knowing that you always introduced men to women, and this smiling lady hadn't told him her... "'Lady Roberta Mezzarole,' she said. "'Most people who know me call me Madam, but my friends call me Bobby.' Lord Venturi clicked his heels. He was quicker on the uptake than his comrade-in-arms, and his wife told him more of the current gossip. "'Ah, must be the lady from Genua,' he said, taking her hand. "'I have heard so much about you.' "'Anything good?' said Madam. His lordship glanced across the room. His wife appeared to be deep in conversation. He knew to his cost that her wifely radar could fry an egg half a mile away, but the champagne had been good. "'Mostly expensive,' 
he said, which didn't sound quite as witty as he intended. She laughed anyway. Perhaps I was witty, he thought. I say this champagne really is excellent. A woman has to make her way in the world as best she can, she said. May I make so bold as to ask if there is a Lord Mesarole, he said. So early in the evening, said Madame, and laughed again. Lord Venturi found himself laughing with her. My word, he told himself, this wit is a lot easier than I thought. No, of course, I meant, he began. I'm sure you did, said Madame, tapping him lightly with her fan. Now I mustn't monopolise you, but I really must drag both of you away to talk to some of my friends. She took Lord Venturi by the unresisting arm and piloted him across the floor. Salachi followed morosely, being of the opinion that when respectable women called themselves Bobby, the world was about to end, and ought to. "'Mr. Carter has extensive interest in copper, and Mr. Jones is very interested in rubber,' she whispered. There were about six men in the group, talking in low voices. As their lordships approached, they caught. "'And at a time like this one really must ask oneself where one's true loyalties lie. Oh, good evening, madam.' On her apparently random walk to the buffet-table, Madame happened to meet several other gentlemen, and, like a good hostess, piloted them in the direction of other small groups. Probably only someone lying on the huge beams that spanned the hall high above would spot any pattern, and even then they'd have to know the code. If they had been in a position to put a red spot on the heads of those people who were not friends of the patrician, and a white spot on those who were his cronies, and a pink spot on those who were perennial waverers, then they would have seen something like a dance taking place. There were not many whites. They would have seen that there were several groups of reds, and white spots were being introduced into them in ones or twos if the number of reds in the group was large enough. If a white left a group, he or she was effortlessly scooped up and shunted into another conversation which might contain one or two pinks, but was largely red. Any conversation entirely between white spots was gently broken up with a smile and an, "'Oh, but now you must meet!' or was joined by several red spots. Pinks, meanwhile, were delicately passed from red group to red group until they were deeply pink, and then they were allowed to mix with other pinks of the same hue under the supervision of a red. In short, the pinks met so many reds and so few whites that they probably forgot about whites at all, while the whites, constantly alone or hugely outnumbered by reds or deep pinks, appeared to be going red out of embarrassment or a desire to blend in. Lord Winder was entirely surrounded by reds, leaving the few remaining whites out in the cold. He looked like all the patricians tended to look after a certain time in office, unpleasantly plump, with the pink jowliness of a man of normal build who had too much rich food. He was sweating slightly in this quite cool room, and his eyes swivelled this way and that, looking for the flaws, the clues, the angles. At last, Madame reached the buffet, where Dr. Follett was helping himself to the devilled eggs, and Miss Rosemary Palm was debating with herself as to whether the future should contain strange pastry things with a green filling that hinted mysteriously of prawn. "'And how are we doing, do you think?' said Dr. Follett, apparently to a swan carved out of ice. "'We are doing well,' "'Madam told a basket of fruit. "'There's four, however, that are still proving awkward.' "'I know them,' said the doctor. "'They'll fall into place, trust me. "'What else can they do? "'We're used to this game here. "'We know that if you complain too loudly when you lose, "'you might not be asked to play again. "'But I shall station some stout friends near them, "'just in case their resolve needs a little bolstering.' 
"'He is suspicious,' said Miss Palm. "'When isn't he?' said Dr. Follett. "'Go and talk to him.' "'Where is our new best friend, Doctor?' said Madame. "'Mr. Snapcase is dining quietly but visibly in impeccable company some way away.' They turned when the double doors opened, so did several of the other guests, and then turned back hastily. But it was only a servant, who hurried over to Madame and whispered something. She indicated the two military commanders, and the man went over to hover anxiously beside them. There was a brief exchange, and then, without even a bow towards Lord Winder, all three men went out. "'I shall just go and see to the arrangements,' said Madame, and, without in any sense following the men, headed towards the doors.' When she stepped into the hall, the two servants waiting by the cake stopped lounging and snapped to attention, and a guard who was patrolling the corridor gave her a quick glance of interrogation. "'Now, madam,' said one of the servants. "'What? Oh, no, just wait!' She glided over to where the commanders were in animated conversation with a couple of junior officers, and took Lord Venturi's arm. "'Oh, dear, Charles, are you leaving us so soon?' Lord Venturi didn't think of wondering how she knew his first name— The champagne had been plentiful, and he saw no reason at the moment why any attractive woman of a certain age shouldn't know his name. "'Oh, there are one or two pockets of resistance left,' he said. "'Nothing to concern you, madam.' "'Bloody big pocket,' murmured Lord Salachi into his moustache. "'They destroyed Big Mary, sir,' said the luckless messenger, "'and they—' "'Major Mountjoy Stanfast can't outthink a bunch of gormless watchmen and civilians and some veterans with garden forks,' said Lord Venturi who had no idea of how much damage a garden fork could do if hurled straight down from an elevation of twenty feet. "'That's just it, sir. They are veterans, and they know all—' "'And the civilians, unarmed civilians,' said Venturi. The messenger, who was a sub-lieutenant and very nervous, couldn't find the right words to explain that unarmed civilian was stretching a point when it was a two-hundred-pound slaughterhouse man with a long hook in one hand and a flensing knife in the other. Young men who joined up for the uniforms and a bed all to themselves did not expect that kind of treatment. Uh, "'Permission to speak freely, sir?' he tried. "'Very well.' "'The men haven't got the heart for it, sir. They'd kill a clatchion in a wing, sir, but, well, some of the old soldiers are from the regiment, sir, and they're shouting down all kinds of stuff. A lot of the men come from down there, and it's not good for them. And what some of the old ladies shout, sir, well, I've never heard such language.' "'Dolly's sister was bad enough, sir, but this is a bit too much. Sorry, sir.' Their lordships looked out the window. There was half a regiment in the palace grounds, men who'd had nothing to do for several days but stand guard. "'Some backbone and a quick thrust,' said Salachi. "'That's what's needed by Io. Lance the boil. This is not a cavalry action, Venturi. And I'll take those men. Fresh blood.' "'Salachi, we do have orders.' "'We have all kinds of orders,' said Salachi. "'But we know where the enemy is, don't we? "'Aren't there enough guards here? "'How many guards does one fool need?' "'We can't just—' Lord Venturi began, but Madame said, "'I'm sure Charles will see that no harm comes to his lordship.' And she took his arm. "'He does have his sword, after all.' A few minutes later, Madame glanced out the window and saw that the troops were quietly moving out. She also noticed, after watching for some time, that the guard patrolling in the hall seemed to have vanished. There were rules. When you had a guild of assassins, there had to be rules which everyone knew and which were never, ever broken. Sometimes, admittedly, for a given value of never. An assassin, a real assassin, had to look like one. 
black clothes, hood, boots and all. If they could wear any clothes, any disguise, then what could anyone do but spend all day sitting in a small room with a loaded crossbow pointed at the door? And they couldn't kill a man incapable of defending himself. Although a man worth more than 10,000 more pork dollars a year was considered automatically capable of defending himself, or at least of employing people to do it for him. And they had to give the target a chance. But there was no helping some people. It was regrettable how many rulers of the city had been inhumed by the men in black, because they didn't recognise a chance when they saw it, didn't know when they'd gone too far, didn't care that they'd made too many enemies, didn't read the signs, didn't know when to walk away after embezzling a moderate and acceptable amount of cash. They didn't realise it when the machine had stopped, when the world was ripe for change, when it was time, in fact, to spend more time with their family in case they ended up spending it with their ancestors. Of course, the Guild didn't inhume their rulers on their own behalf. There was a rule about that, too. They were simply there when needed. There was a tradition once, far back in the past, called King of the Bean. A special dish was served to all the men of their clan on a certain day of the year. It contained one small, hard-baked bean, and whoever got the bean was, possibly after some dental attention, hailed as king. It was quite an inexpensive system, and it worked well, probably because the clever little bald men who actually ran things and paid some attention to possible candidates were experts at palming a bean into the right bowl. And while the crops ripened and the tribe thrived and the land was fertile, the king thrived too. But when, in the fullness of time, crops failed and the ice came back and the animals were inexplicably barren, the clever little bald men sharpened their long knives, which were mostly used for cutting mistletoe. And on the due night, one of them went into his cave and carefully baked one small bean. Of course, that was before people were civilised. These days no one had to eat beans. People were still working on the barricade. It had become a sort of general hobby, a kind of group home improvement. Fire buckets, some full of water, some of sand, had turned up. In places the barricade was more impregnable than the city walls, considering how often the latter had been pillaged for stone. There were occasional drumbeats down in the city, and the sound of troop movements. Sergeant? Vimes looked down. A face had appeared at the top of the ladder leading down into the street. Ah, Miss Batty, I didn't know you were with us. A didn't intend to be, but suddenly there was this big wall. She climbed all the way up. She was holding a small bucket. Dr Lorne presents his compliments and says, How come you haven't beaten anyone up yet? She said, putting it down. He says he's got three tables scrubbed, two buckets of tar on the boil, six ladies rolling bandages, and all he's had to deal with so far is a nosebleed. You've let him down, he says. Tell him ha, 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 said Vimes. I've brought you up some breakfast, said Sandra, and Vimes realised that down below, doing their not very best to remain unseen, were some of the lads, and they were sniggering. Mushrooms, he said. No, said the girl. I was told to tell you that since it's tomorrow, you're going to get everything you wished for. For a moment, Vimes tensed, not certain where the world was taking him. A hard-boiled egg, said Sandra. And Sam Vimes said you probably like the yolk runny and some toast cut up into soldiers. Just like he does, said Vimes weakly. Good guess, that man. Vimes tossed the egg up into the air, expecting to catch it when it came down. Instead, there was a noise like scissors closing and the air rained runny yolk and bits of shell. And then it rained arrows. 
The noise level of the conversation had gone up. Madame moved in on the group around Lord Window. Magically, within ten seconds, they were left alone as all the other people in the group saw people across the room that they really had to talk to. "'Who are you?' said Window, his eyes surveying her with that care a man takes when he fears that a woman is carrying concealed weaponry. "'Madame Roberta Messerel, my lord.' "'The one from Genoa,' Winder snorted, which was his attempt to snigger. "'I've heard stories about Genoa.' "'I could probably tell you a few more, my lord,' said Madame. "'But right now it's time for the cake.' "'Yeah,' said Winder. "'Did you know we got another assassin tonight? "'They keep trying, you know. Eleven years and still they try, but I get em every time. "'Sneak about, though they may.' "'Well done, my lord,' said Madame. "'It did help that he was an unpleasant person, ugly, clear to the bone. "'In some ways it made things easier. "'She turned and clapped her hands. "'Surprisingly, this small noise caused a sudden cessation in the chatter.' The double doors at the end of the hall opened and two trumpeters appeared. They took up positions on either side of the door. Stop em! Winder yelled and ducked. His two guards ran down the hall and grabbed the trumpets from the frightened men. They handled them with extreme care, as if expecting them to explode or issue a strange gas. Poison darts, said Winder in a satisfied voice. Can't be too careful, madam. In this job you learn to watch every shadow. All right, let them play, but no trumpets. I hate tubes pointed at me. There was some... "'bewildered conversation at the other end of the hall, "'then the bereft trumpeters stood back and whistled as best they could. "'Lord Winder laughed as the cake was pushed in. "'It was in tears about man-height and heavily iced. "'Lovely!' he said as the crowd clapped. "'I do like some entertainment at a party, and I cut it, do I?' "'He took a few steps back and nodded at the bodyguards. "'Off you go, boys!' he said. Swords stabbed into the top tier several times. The guards looked at Winder and shook their heads. "'There's such a thing as dwarfs, you know,' he said. They stabbed at the second layer, again meeting no more resistance than can be offered by dried fruit and suet and a crust of marzipan with sugar frosting. "'He could be kneeling down,' said Winder. The audience watched, their smiles frozen. When it became clear that the cake was solid and unoccupied, the food taste was sent for. Most of the guests recognised him. His name was Spy Mould. He was said to have eaten so much poison in his time that he was proof against anything, and that he ate a toad every day to keep in condition. It was also rumoured that he could turn silver black by breathing on it. He selected a piece of cake and chewed it thoughtfully, staring intently upwards whilst he did so. Hmm, he said after a while. Well, said Winder. Sorry, my lord, said Spy Mould. Nothing. I thought there was a touch of cyanide there, but no luck, it's just the almonds. No poison at all, said the patrician. You mean it's edible? Well, yes. It'd be all the better for some toad, of course, but that's just one man's opinion. Perhaps the servants can serve it now, my lord, said madam. Don't trust servants serving food, said Winder. Sneaking about, could slip something in. Do you mind if I do it then, my lord? Yeah, all right, said Lord Winder. "'watching the cake carefully. "'I'll have the ninth piece they cut.' "'But in fact, he snatched the fifth piece triumphantly, "'as if saving something precious from the wreckage. "'The cake was disassembled. "'Lord Winder's objection to servants handling food "'withered once the food was headed for other people, "'and so the party spread out a little "'as the guests pondered the ancient question "'of how to hold a plate and a glass and eat at the same time "'without using one of those little glass-holding things "'that clip on the side of the plate "'and make the user look as though they're four years old.' This takes a lot of concentration, and that might have been why everyone was so curiously self-absorbed.
The door opened. A figure walked into the room. Winder looked up over the top of his plate. It was a slim figure, hooded and masked, all in black. Winder stared. Around him the conversation rose, and a watcher above might have noticed that the drift of the party tides was such that they were leaving a wide, empty path, stretching from the door all the way to Winder, whose legs didn't want to move. As it strolled towards him, the figure reached both hands behind it, and they came back, each holding a small pistol bow. There were a couple of small tick noises, and the bodyguards collapsed gently towards the floor. Then it tossed the bows behind it, and kept coming. Its footfalls made no sound. said Winder, staring. His mouth was open and stuffed with cake. People chattered on. Somewhere, someone had told a joke. There was laughter, perhaps a shade shriller than might normally be the case. The noise level rose again. Winder blinked. Assassins didn't do this. They snuck around. They used the shadows. This didn't happen in real life. This was how it happened in dreams. And now the creature was in front of him. He dropped his spoon, and there was a sudden silence after it clanged on the ground. There was another rule. Wherever possible, the inhumed should be told who the assassin was and who had sent him. It was felt by the Guild that this was only fair. Winder did not know this, and it was not widely advertised, but nevertheless, in the midst of terror, eyes wide, he asked the questions. "'Who sent "'I come from the city,' said the figure, drawing a thin, silvery sword. "'Who are you?' "'Think of me as... your future.' The figure drew the sword back, but it was too late. Terra's own more subtle knife had done its work. Winder's face was crimson, his eyes were staring at nothing, and coming up from the throat, through the crumbs of cake, was a sound that merged a creak with a sigh. The dark figure lowered its sword, watched for a moment in the echoing silence, and then said, Boo. It reached out one gloved hand and gave the patrician a push. Winder went over backwards, his plate dropping from his hand and shattering on the tiles. The assassin held his bloodless sword at arm's length and let it drop on the floor beside the corpse. Then he turned and walked slowly back across the marble floor. He shut the double doors behind him. Madame counted slowly to ten before she screamed. That seemed long enough. Lord Winder got to his feet and looked up at the black-clad figure. "'Another one!' "'Where did you creep in from?' "'I do not creep.' Winder's mind felt even fuzzier than it had done over the past few years, but he was certain about cake. He'd been eating cake, and now there wasn't any. Through the mists he saw it, apparently close, but when he tried to reach it, a long way away. A certain realisation dawned on him. "'Oh,' he said. "'Yes,' said Death. Not even time to finish my cake. No, there is no more time, even for cake. For you, the cake is over. You have reached the end of cake. A grapnel thudded into the wall beside Vimes. There were shouts along the barricade. More hooks snaked up and bit into the wood. Another rain of arrows clattered on the roofs of the houses. The attackers weren't ready to risk hitting their own side, but arrows were snapping and bouncing in the street below. Vimes heard shouts and the clang of arrows on armour. 
A sound made him turn. A helmeted head rose level with his, and the face beneath it blanched in terror when it saw Vimes. "'That was my egg, you bastard!' he screamed, punching the nose. "'With soldiers!' The man fell back, by the sound of it, onto other climbers. Men were yelling all along the parapet. Vimes pulled out his truncheon. "'Adam, lads!' he yelled. "'Truncheons, nothing fancy. Bop them on the fingers and let gravity do the work. They're going down!' He ducked, pressing close to the wood, and tried to find a spy hole. "'They're using big catapults,' said Sandra, who'd found a gap a few feet away. "'There's a—' Vimes pulled her away. "'What are you doing still up here?' he roared. "'It's safer than the street!' she yelled back, nose to nose with him. "'Not if one of those grapnels hits you, it isn't!' He grabbed his knife. "'Here, take this. You see a rope anywhere, cut it.' He scurried along behind the shelter of the wobbling parapet, but the defenders were doing very well. It wasn't exactly rocket magic in any case. The people at ground level were firing out through any crack they could find, and while aiming was not easy, it didn't need to be. There is nothing like the zip and zing of arrows around them to make people nervous at their work. And the climbers were too bunched up. They had to be. If they tried attacking on a broad front, there'd be three defenders to greet each man, so they were in one another's way, and every falling man would take a couple more down with him, and the barricade was full of little gaps and holes where a defender with a spear could seriously prod those trying to climb up the outside. This is stupid, Vimes thought. It'd take a thousand men to break through, and that'd only be when the last fifty ran up the slope made of the bodies of all the rest of them. Someone out there is doing the old hit-them-at-their-strongest-point-to-show-me-mean-business thinking. Ye gods, is this how we won our wars? So how would I have dealt with this? Well, I'd have said, Detritus, remove the barricade, and made sure the defenders heard me. That's what I would have done. End of problem. There was a scream from further along the parapet. A grapnel had caught one of the watchmen and pulled him hard against the wood. Vimes reached him in time to see a hook dragged into the man's body through breastplate and mail as an attacker hauled himself up. Vimes caught the man's sword arm in one hand and punched him with the other, letting him tumble into the melee below. The stricken watchman was Nancy Ball. His face was blue-white, his mouth opened and shut soundlessly, and blood pooled around his feet. It dripped through the planks. "'Let's get the bloody thing out,' Wiglet said, grabbing the hook. Vimes pushed him away as a couple of arrows hummed overhead. "'That could do more damage. "'Call up some lads, take him down really carefully, and get him to lawn.' Vimes snatched up Nancy Ball's truncheon and brought it down on the helmet of another struggling climber. "'He's still breathing, Sarge?' said Wiglet. "'Right, right,' said Vimes. "'It was amazing how willing people were to see life in the corpse of a friend. "'So make yourself useful and get him down to the doctor.' "'And speaking as one who'd seen some stricken men in his time, "'he mentally added,' and if Lorne can sort him out, he can start his own religion. A lucky attacker who'd achieved the top of the barricade and then found himself horribly alone slashed desperately at Vimes with his sword. Vimes turned back to business. Ank Morpork was good at this, and had become good at it without anyone ever discussing it. Things flowed rather than happened. That is, you'd sometimes have to look quite hard to find the point of change between hasn't been done yet and already taken care of, old boy and that was how it was done. Things were taken care of. It was twenty minutes before Mr Snapcase arrived, and twenty-five minutes before he was duly sworn in as patrician, had magically become Lord Snapcase, and was sitting in the oblong office. This included the one-minute silence for the late Lord Winder, whose body had been taken care of. A number of servants were shown the door without any great unpleasantness, and even Spymold was allowed to remove his toad farm in peace. 
but those who filled the grates and dusted the furniture and swept the floors stayed on, as they had stayed on before, because they seldom paid any attention to, or possibly didn't even know, who their lord was, and in any case were too useful, and knew where the brooms were kept. Men come and go, but dust accumulates. And it was the morning of a new day which looked, seen from below, quite like the old ones. After a while, someone raised the question of fighting, which clearly needed to be taken care of. There were scuffles all along the barricade now, but they were going only one way. Siege ladders had been brought up, and at several places along the parapet, men had managed to climb in. But they could never get enough in one place. There were far more defenders than attackers, and they weren't all men under arms. One thing Vimes was learning fast was the natural vindictiveness of old ladies, who had no sense of fair play when it came to fighting soldiers. Give a granny a spear and a hole to jab it through, and young men on the other side were in big trouble. And then there was Reg Shoe's inspired idea of the use of steak dinners as a weapon. The attackers did not come from homes where steak was ever on the table. Meat tended to be the flavouring, not the meal. But here and there, men who'd achieved the top of the ladders, in darkness, with the groans and yells of their unsuccessful comrades below them, had their weapons dragged from their hands by well-fed former colleagues, who were not unkind and who directed them down the ladder, inside for steak and eggs and roast chicken, and a promise that every day would be like this come the revolution. Vimes didn't want that news to get out, in case there was a rush to invade. But the grannies, or the grannies, the neighbourhoods of the Republic were a natural recruiting ground for the regiments. It was also an area of big families and matriarchs whose word was family law. It had almost been cheating, putting them on the parapet with a megaphone during the lulls. "'I knows you're out there, our Ron. This is your nan. You climb up one more time and you'll feel the back of my hand. Our Rita sends her love and wants you to hurry home. Grandpa is feeling a lot better with the new ointment. Now stop being a silly boy.' It was a dirty trick, and he was proud of it. Messages like that sapped a fighting spirit better than arrows. And then Vimes realised that there were no more men on the ropes and ladders. He could hear yells and groans below, but those soldiers who could stand were withdrawing to a safe distance. Now me, thought Vimes, I'd have gone down to the cellars of the houses near the street. Ank Morpork is all cellars, and I'd have chipped my way through the rotten walls, and half the cellars on this side of the barricades would have men in them now nice and snug. Admittedly, last night I had the men nail up and bar every cellar door they could find, but after all, I wouldn't be fighting me, now would I? He peered through a gap between planks, and was amazed to see a man walking gingerly forward amongst the wreckage and the groaning men. He was carrying a white flag, and stopped occasionally to wave it, but not to shout hurrah. When he was as close as possible to the barricade, he called up, "'I say!' Behind his planking, Vimes shut his eyes. "'No gods,' he thought. He called down, "'Yeah, can we help you? Who are you?' "'Sergeant Keel, Night Watch. And you?' "'Sub-Lieutenant Harrop. Er, uh, we ask for a brief truce.' "'Why?' "'Er, uh, so that we can recover our wounded.' "'The rules of war,' Vimes thought. "'The field of honour. Good grief.' "'And then,' he said, "'Sorry?' "'What happens after that? We start fighting again?' "'Um, hasn't anyone told you?' said the sub-lieutenant. "'Told us what?' "'We've just heard. Lord Winder is dead. Um, Lord Snapcase is patrician.' A cheer began among the nearby defenders and was taken up below. Vimes felt the relief rise, but he wouldn't be Vimes if he'd just let things lie. He called out, "'So, would you like to change ends?' "'Er, uh, sorry?' 
I mean, would your chaps like to have a go at defending the barricade and we can try attacking it? Vimes heard laughter from the defenders. There was a pause, then the young man said, Um, why? Because, correct me if I am wrong, we are now the loyal supporters of the official government and you are the rebellious rump of a discredited administration. Am I right? Um, I think we did have, um, legitimate orders. Heard of a man called Captain Swing? Um, yes. He thought he had legitimate orders too, said Vimes. Um, yes. Boy, was he surprised. All right, all right, a truce. We agree. Would you like my lads to give you a hand? We've got a doctor here, very good. I've yet to hear screaming. Um, thank you, sir, the young man saluted. Vimes saluted back. Then he relaxed and turned to the defenders. OK, lads, he said. Stand down. Steal them if you haven't got them. He shinned down the ladder. Well, then, that was it. It was over. Ring out bells, dance in streets. Sarge, did you mean that about helping their mothers with their wounded? Said Sam, who was standing at the bottom of the ladder. Well, it makes as much sense as anything else that's been happening, said Vimes. They're city lads just like us. Not their fault they were given the wrong orders. And it messes with their heads, he thought. Makes them wonder why all this is happening. Only... Nancy Ball's dead, Sarge. Vimes took a deep breath. He'd known it anyway, up there on the wobbling ramparts, but hearing it said aloud was still a shock. I dare say there's a few of theirs who won't make it through to morning, he said. Yeah, but they were the enemy, Sarge. It's always worth thinking about who your enemy is, said Vimes, tugging at the barricade. How about the man who's trying to stick a sword into you, said Sam. That's a good start, said Vimes. But there are times when it pays to be a little less tightly focused. In the oblong office, Snapcase put his hands together and tapped his front teeth with his forefingers. Quite a lot of paperwork was spread in front of him. What to do, what to do, he said thoughtfully. A general amnesty as usual, my lord, said Mr Slant. Mr Slant, as head of the Guild of Lawyers, had advised many leaders of the city. He was also a zombie, although this had, if anything, benefited his career. He was precedent. He knew how things should go. Yes, yes, of course, said Snapcase. A clean start, of course. No doubt there is a traditional form of words. In fact, my lord, I happen to have a copy right here. Yes, yes. Tell me about this barricade, though, will you? The one that was still standing... He looked up at the crowd assembled in the office. "'You know about that, sir,' said Follett. "'I do have my own informants, you know,' said Snapcase. "'It has caused rather a stir, has it not? "'Some fellow put together a rather smart defence force, "'cut us off from the vital organs of the city, "'broke up Captain Swing's organisation, "'and has withstood the best attacks that could be made against him. "'And he is a sergeant, I hear.' "'May I suggest that a promotion is in order?' said Madam. "'I was thinking exactly the same thing,' said Snapcase, his little eyes gleaming. "'And then there is the question of his men. Loyal are they?' "'Apparently, sir,' said Madam. She exchanged a puzzled glance with Dr. Follett. Snapcase sighed. "'On the other hand, a soldier can hardly be punished for loyalty to a senior officer, especially in these difficult times.' There is no reason to take formal action against them. Eyes met again. They all felt it, the sense of the world slipping. 
"'But not keel, however,' said Snapcase, standing up and removing a snuff-box from his waistcoat pocket. "'Think about it, I pray you. What ruler could tolerate the existence of such a man? He did all that in just a few days? I dread to think what he might take it into his head to do to-morrow. These are delicate times. Are we to be hostage to every whim of a mere sergeant?' "'We do not need someone like Keel doing things his way. "'Besides, you know the particulars could have been useful to us. "'Suitably re-educated, obviously.' "'I thought you said you wanted to promote him,' said Dr. Follett bluntly. "'Lord Snapcase took a pinch of snuff and blinked once or twice. "'Yes,' he said. "'Promote him, as they say, to glory.' The crowd in the room were silent. One or two of its members were horrified. Some were impressed. You didn't stay at the top in ankh Morpork without developing a certain pragmatic approach to life, and Snapcase seemed to have got a grip on that with commendable speed. "'The barricade is coming down,' said the patrician, shutting the snuff-box with a click. "'Yes, my lord,' said Dr. Follett. "'Because of the general amnesty,' he added, just to make sure the word was repeated— the Guild of Assassins had a code of honour as well as rules. It was an odd code, carefully constructed to fit their needs, but it was a code nonetheless. You didn't kill the unprotected or servants, you did it up close, and you kept your word. This was appalling. Capital, said Snapcase. Ideal time. Streets full, much confusion. Unreconstructed elements, vital message not passed on, left hand not knowing what right hand doing, difficulties of the situation regrettable. No, my dear doctor, I do not intend to make any demands of your guild. Fortunately, there are those whose loyalty to the city is a little less conditional. Yes. And now, please, there is much to be done. I shall look forward to meeting you all later. The crowd were ushered politely but firmly out of the room, and the doors shut behind them. "'It seems we're back at school,' muttered Dr. Follett, as they were swept along the corridor. "'Ave, duci, novo, similis duci, seneci,' murmured Mr. Slant, dryly as only a zombie can manage. "'Or, as we used to say at school, ave, bossa nova, similis bossa seneca,' he gave a little schoolmasterly laugh. "'He felt at home with dead languages. "'Of course, grammatically, that is completely. "'And that means,' said Madame. "'Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss,' muttered Dr. Follett. "'I counsel patience,' said Slant. "'He's new in the job. He may settle into it. "'The city is good at working around problems. Give him time.' "'And we want someone who's decisive,' said someone in the hurrying crowd. "'We wanted someone who decides the right things,' said Madame. She elbowed her way to the front of the crowd, hurried down the main staircase, and darted into an anteroom. Miss Palm stood up as she came in. "'Have they?' she began. "'Where's Havelock?' Madame demanded. "'Here,' said Vetinari, detaching himself from a shadow by the curtains. "'Take my coach. Find Keel. Warn him. Snapcase wants him dead. But where is—' Madame pointed a threatening, trembling finger. "'Do it now, or receive an aunt's curse!' When the doors were shut, Lord Snapcase stared at them for some moments, and then pressed the bell for his chief secretary. The man insinuated himself into the room via the private door. "'Everyone is settling in,' said Snapcase. 
"'Yes, my lord, there are a number of matters for your attention.' "'I am sure people would like to believe there are,' said Snapcase, leaning back in the chair. He shifted his weight from side to side. "'Does this thing swivel?' "'I believe not, sir, but I shall have a skilled swiveller here within the hour.' "'Good. Now, what was the other thing? Oh, yes. Tell me, are there any up-and-coming men at the Guild of Assassins?' "'I am sure there are, my lord. Would you like me to prepare dossiers on, say, three of them?' "'Do it.' "'Yes, my lord.' "'My lord, various people are urgently seeking an audience with let them wait. "'Now that we have the patrician ship, we mean to enjoy it.' "'Snapcase drummed his fingers on the edge of the desk for a moment, "'still staring at the doors. "'Then he said, "'My inaugural speech is prepared. "'Very sorry, here, unexpected death, winder, overwork, new direction, etc.' Keep best of old while embracing best of new. Beware dangerous elements. Sacrifices must be made, etc. Pull together good of city. Exactly, sir. Add that I was particularly sad to hear tragic death Sergeant Keel. Hope that fitting memorial to him would be the uniting of citizens of all shades of opinion in an effort to etc. etc. The secretary made a few notes. "'Quite, sir,' he said. Snapcase smiled at him. "'I expect you're wondering why I've taken you on, even though you worked for my predecessor, eh?' he said. "'No, sir,' said the secretary, without looking up. He wasn't wondering, firstly because he had a pretty good idea, and secondly because there were, in any case, things he found it safest not to wonder about. "'It is because I recognise talent whenever it presents itself,' said Snapcase. "'It is good of you to say so, sir.' "'said the secretary smoothly. "'Many a rough stone can be polished into a gem.' "'Exactly, my lord,' said the secretary. "'And he was thinking, exactly, my lord, too, "'because he'd also found there were things "'he found it safest not to think, either. "'And these included phrases like, "'What a little tit!' "'Where is my new captain of the guard?' "'I believe Captain Carcer is in the rear courtyard, my lord, exhorting the men in no uncertain terms. "'Tell him I want to see him here now,' said Snapcase. "'Certainly, sir.' The barricade was taking some while to dismantle. Chair-legs and planks and bedsteads and doors and bulks of timber had settled into a tangled mass. Since every piece belonged to someone, and Ankh-Morpork people care about that sort of thing, it was being dismantled by collective argument. This was not least because people who had donated a three-legged stool to the common good were trying to take away a set of dining chairs and similar problems. And then there was the traffic. Carts that had been held up outside the city were trying to make their way to their destinations before eggs hatched or milk got so rotten it could get out and walk the rest of the way. If Ankh Morpork had a grid, there would have been a gridlock. Since it did not, it was, in the words of Sergeant Colon, a case of no one being able to move because of everyone else. Admittedly, this phrase, while accurate, did not have the same snap. Some of the watchmen had joined in the dismantling work, mostly to stop the fights that were breaking out among irate householders, but a group of them had congregated at the end of Heroes Street, where Snouty had set up a mess in a cocoa urn. There wasn't, in fact, much to do. A few hours ago they'd been fighting. Now the streets were so crowded that even patrols were impossible. Every good copper knows that there are times when the wise man keeps out of the way and the conversation had turned to the kind of questions that follow victory, such as, one, is there going to be any extra money, and two, are there going to be any medals? 
with an option on three, which was never far from the watchman's thoughts, are we going to get into trouble about this? "'An amnesty means we ain't,' said Dickens. "'It means everyone pretends nothing really happened.' "'All right, then,' said Wiglet. "'Are we going to get medals? "'What I mean is, if we've been,' he concentrated, "'Val, he ain't defenders of freedom. "'That sounds like medal time to me.' "'Hey, Rick, and we should simply have barricaded the old city,' said Colon. "'Yeah, Fred,' said Snouty. "'But then that'd mean the bad people <coughs> would be in here with us.' "'Right, but we'd be in charge,' said Fred. "'Sergeant Dickens puffed on his pipe and said, "'Lads, you're just flapping your mouths. "'There's been fighting, and here you are with all your arms and legs "'and walking around in the God's good sunlight. "'That's winning, that is. "'You've won, see, the rest is just gravy.' "'No one spoke for a while until young Sam said, "'But Nancy Ball didn't win.' "'We lost five men in all,' said Dickens. Two got hit by arrows, one fell off the barricade, and one cut his own throat by accident. "'It happens.' They stared at him. "'Oh, you thought it didn't,' said Dickens. "'You get a lot of worried people and edged weapons and a lot of scurrying, all in one place. You'll be amazed at the casualties you can get even when you're fifty miles from an enemy. People die.' "'Did Nancy Ball have a mum?' said Sam. "'He was brought up by his gran, but she's dead,' said Wiglet. "'No one else?' "'Dunno. He never talked about them. "'He never talked about anything very much,' said Wiglet. "'What you do is you have a whip round,' said Dickens firmly. "'Wreath coughing the lot. You don't let anyone else do it. "'And another thing.' Vimes sat a little way from the men, watching the street. There were groups of former defenders and veterans and watchmen everywhere. He watched a man buy a pie from Dibbler and shook his head and grinned. On a day when you couldn't give steak away, some people would still buy a pie from Dibbler.' It was a triumph of salesmanship, and the city's famously atrophied taste buds. The song began. Whether it was a requiem or a victory chant, he didn't know, but Dickens started it and the rest joined in, each man singing as though he was all by himself and unaware of the rest. See the little angels rise up high. Others were picking up the tune. Red Shoe was also sitting all alone, on a piece of barricade currently not in dispute, still clutching the flag and looking so miserable that Vimes felt moved to go and speak to him. "'Rise up, rise up, rise up, how do they rise up, rise up high?' "'It could have been good, Sergeant,' said Reg, looking up. "'It really could. A city where a man can breathe free. "'They rise arse up, arse up, arse up, see the little angels rise up high.' "'We's free, Reg,' said Vimes, sitting down next to him. "'This is Ank Moorpork.' And they all hit that line together, thought the part of him that was listening with the other ear. Strange that they should do that. Or maybe not. Yeah, make a joke of it. Everyone thinks it's funny, said Reg, looking at his feet. I don't know if this'll help, Reg, but I didn't even get my hard-boiled egg, said Vimes. And what's going to happen next, said Reg, far too sunk in misery to sympathise or, for that matter, notice. All the little angels rise up, rise up. I really don't know. Things will get better for a while, I expect. But I don't know what I'm... The Vimes stopped. On the far side of the street, oblivious to the traffic, a little wizened old man was sweeping dust out of a doorway. Vimes stood up and stared. The little man saw him and gave him a wave. And at that moment, yet another cart rumbled down the road, piled high with former barricade. Vimes flung himself flat and stared between the legs and wheels. Yes, the slightly bandy legs and the battered sandals were still there and still there too when the cart had passed, and still there when Vimes started to run across the street, and may have been there when the unregarded following cart almost knocked him over, 
and were completely not there when he straightened up. He stood where they had been, in the busy street, on the sunny morning, and felt the night sweep over him. He felt the hairs stand up on his neck. The conversations around him grew louder, became a clamour in his ears, and the light was too bright. There were no shadows, and he was looking for shadows now. He dodged and jinked across the street to the singing men and waved them into silence. "'Get ready!' he growled. "'Something's going to happen.' "'What, Sarge?' said Sam. "'Something not good, I think. An attack, maybe.' Vimes scanned the street for, what, little old men with brooms? If anything, the scene was less menacing than before the troubles, because now the other shoe had dropped. People weren't standing around waiting for it any more. There was a general bustle. "'No offence, Sarge,' said Dickens, "'but it all looks peaceful enough to me. There's an amnesty, Sarge. No one's fighting anyone.' "'Sarge! Sarge!' They all turned. Nobby Nobbs was sidling and skipping down the street. They saw his lips shape a message, completely drowned out by the squeals from a wagonload of pigs. Lance Constable Sam Vimes looked at the face of his sergeant. "'Something is wrong,' he said. "'Look at Sarge.' "'Will what?' said Fred Colon. "'A giant bird's going to drop out the sky or something?' There was a thud and a gasp from Wiglet. An arrow had hit him in the chest and had gone right through. Another one smacked into the wall above Vimes's head, showering dust. "'In here!' he yelled. The door to the shop behind them was open, and he plunged through. People piled in behind him. He heard the noise of arrows outside and one or two screams. "'Amnesty, Sergeant,' he said. Outside the rumbling carts had stopped, blocking out the light to the bullseye panes of the shop windows and temporarily shielding it. "'Then it's got to be some idiots,' said Dickens. "'Rebels, maybe.' "'Why?' "'There were never that many rebels, we know that. Anyway, they won.' Now there was shouting outside, beyond the carts. Nothing like a cart for blocking the road. Counter-revolutionaries, then, Dickens suggested. What, people who want to put Winder back in charge, said Vimes. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd join. He looked around the shop. It was packed, wall to wall. Who are all these people? You said in here, Sergeant, said a soldier. Yeah, and we didn't need telling, because it was raining arrows, said another soldier. I didn't mean to come in, but I couldn't swim against the tide, said Dibbler. I want to show solidarity, said Reg. "'Sarge! Sarge! It's me, Sarge!' said Nobby, waving his hands. "'A firm, authoritative voice,' thought Vimes. "'It's amazing the trouble it can get you into.' There were about thirty people crowded into the shop, and he didn't recognise half of them. "'Can I um, help any of you gentlemen?' said a thin, querulous little voice behind him. He turned and saw a very small, almost doll-like old lady, all in black, cowering behind her counter. He looked desperately at the shelves behind her. They were piled with skeins of wool.' Uh, I don't think so, he said. Then do you mind if I finish serving Mrs. Soupson? Four ounces of grey two-ply, was it, Mrs. Soupson? Yes, please, Ethel, quavered a tiny, frightened voice somewhere in the middle of the crowd of armed men. We'd better get out of here, muttered Vimes. He turned to the men and waved his hands frantically to suggest that, as far as possible, no one should upset any old ladies. Do you have a back way, please? The shopkeeper's innocent old eyes looked up at him. "'It helps if people buy something, Sergeant,' she said meaningfully. "'And we... Uh, um, Vimes looked around desperately, and inspiration struck. "'Ah, right, yes, uh, I'd like a mushroom,' he said. "'You know, one of those wooden things for... "'Yes, Sergeant, I know. That will be sixpence. Thank you, Sergeant. "'I always like to see a gentleman ready to do it for himself, I must say.' "'Could I interest you in a—' "'I'm in a big hurry, please,' said Vimes. "'I've got to darn all my socks.' 
He nodded at the men, who responded heroically. Uh, me too. It's full of holes. It's disgusting. I've got to patch them up right now. It's me, Sarge, not me, Sarge. You could use mine for fishing nets. The lady unhooked a big keyring. I think it's this one. No, no, I tell a lie. I think it's... No, no, wait a moment. Ah, ah yes, this is the one. Here, Sarge, there's a bunch of men with crossbows in the street, said Fred Colon from the window. About fifty of them. No, no, that's the one. Uh, dear me, that, that's the one. That's the for the lock we used to have. Does this one look right to you? Let us, let's try this one. Very carefully and very slowly, she unlocked and unbolted the door. Vimes poked his head out. They were in an alley filled with trash and old boxes and the horrible smell of alleys everywhere. No one seemed to be around. OK, everybody out, he said. We need a bit of space. Who's got a bow? Just me, Sarge, said Dickens. It's not like we were expecting trouble, see? One against fifty, that's bad odds, said Vimes. Let's get out of here. Are they after us, Sarge? They shot Wiglet, didn't they? Let's move. They scuttled along the alleyway. As they crossed a wider one, there was the distant sound of the shop door being kicked open again, and a gleeful shout. I got you now, Duke! Casa. An arrow clattered off a wall and pinwheeled end over end along the alley. Vimes had run before. Every watchman knew about running. They called it the backyard handicap. Vimes had taken that route many times, ducking through alleys, leaping on wings of terror over the walls from one dog-infested yard to the next, falling into the chicken runs and slipping down privy roofs, looking for safety or his mates, or failing that, somewhere to stand with his back to the wall. Sometimes you had to run. And, like the herd, you stayed together by instinct. In a crowd of thirty or so, you were harder to hit. Fortunately, Dickens had taken the lead. The old coppers were best at running, having run so much during their lives. As on the battlefield, only the cunning and the fast survived. And so he didn't bother to stop as the cart appeared at the end of the alley. It was a Hegler's wagon, probably trying to take a short cut and escape the no-one-being-able-to-move-because-of-everyone-else chaos in the main streets. The man, the back of his wagon piled ten feet high with boxes, his vehicle scraping the walls, looked in horror at the stampede heading for him. No one had any brakes, and absolutely no one was going to go backwards. Vimes, in the rear, watched the group flow over and under the wagon, to the splintering of boxes and the pop of exploding eggs. The horse danced in the shafts, and men dived through its legs or clear over its back. When Vimes reached it, he clambered onto the box just as an arrow hit the woodwork. He grinned desperately at the driver. "'Jump,' he suggested, and smacked the horse on the flank with the flat of his sword." Both men were thrown back as it reared and sent the remains of the stricken load sliding off the wagon. Vimes hauled the driver upright as soon as the debris stopped falling. He was covered in egg. "'Sorry about that, sir. Watch business. Ask for Sergeant Keel. Got to rush.' Behind him the wagon rattled up the alley, wheel rims knocking sparks off the walls. There were doorways and side alleyways to escape into, but Carter's crew would certainly be slowed down. The rest of his crew had stopped when they heard the noise, but Vimes piled into them and forced them on until they reached a road, blocked with carts and thronged with people. "'Well, you've got your soldiers covered in eggs, Sarge,' said Sam, with a worried grin. "'What's all that about?' "'It's some of the unmentionables,' said Vimes. "'Probably want to settle the score.' Well, that was close enough. "'But I saw watchmen and soldiers with them,' said Fred Colon. "'Sarge! It's me, Sarge! Flee, Sarge!' Nobby elbowed his way through the men. "'Is this a good time, Nobby?' said Vimes. "'There's men after you, Sarge.' "'Well done, Nobby. 
Car, sir, Sarge. He's got a job with Snapcase. Captain of the Palace Guard, Sarge. And they're going to get you. Snapcase told him to, Sarge. My mate Scratch and Sniff is the underboot boy at the palace, and he was in the yard and heard him talking, Sarge. I should have known, Vimes thought. Snapcase was a devious devil. And now Carser's got his feet under another bastard's table. Captain of the Guard. I haven't been making a lot of friends lately, said Vimes. OK, gentlemen, I'm going to run. If you lot melt away into the crowd, you'll be fine, I expect. No fear, Sarge, said Sam, and there was a general murmur of agreement. We had an amnesty, said Dickens. They can't do this. Anyway, they were shooting at everyone, said one of the soldiers. Bastards. They need a good going over. They've got bows, said Vimes. So we ambush them, Sarge, said Dickens. Choose your ground and fight up close and a crossbow's just a piece of wood. Did any of you hear me, said Vimes, they're after me, not you. You do not want to mix it with Carsa. You, Snouty, you shouldn't be doing this at your time of life. The old jailer glared at him through runny eyes. That's a hell of a thing to you, <coughs> for you to say to me, Sarge, he said. How do we know he won't decide to come after us anyway, said Dickens. An amnesty's an amnesty, right? They can't do this. There was a general chorus and lines of, yeah, that's right. It's happening, Vimes thought. They are talking themselves right into it. But what can I do? We've got to face them. I've got to face them. I've got to face Carser. The thought of leaving him here with all he knows. How about if we head down Keeble Street, said Dickens. Lots of little alleyways off there. They'll go rushing along, thinking we've bolted for the watch house, and we'll have them. We ain't standing for this, Sarge. Vimes sighed. OK, he said. Thank you. You're of one mind? There was a cheer. Then I won't make a speech, said Vimes. There isn't time. I'll just say this. If we don't win this, if we don't see him off, well, we've got to, that's all. Otherwise it'll be very bad for this city. Very bad. That's right, Dickens cut in insistently. There was an amnesty. But look, said one of the soldiers, I don't know half the men here. If we're going to close in, we want to know who's on our side. That's right, <clears throat> said Snouty. I mean, some of them chasteners was watchmen. Vimes raised his eyes. The wide alley in front of them, known as Lobsneaks, stretched all the way to Cable Street. It was lined with gardens, and there were purple flowers on the bushes. The morning air smelled of lilac. I did call a battle once, said Dickens, looking up at a tree. In history it was, and there was this company, see... "'and there was a ragtag of different squads "'and all covered in mud in any case, "'and they found themselves hiding in a field of carrots. "'So as a badge, they all pulled up carrots "'and stuck them on their helmets, "'so as they'd know where their friends were, "'and incidentally have a nourishing snack for later, "'which is never to be sneezed at on a battlefield.' "'Well, so what?' said Dibbler. "'So what's wrong with a lilac flower?' said Dickens, "'reaching up and pulling down a laden branch. "'Makes a spanking plume even if you can't eat it.' And now, Vimes thought, it ends. I think they are very bad men, said a high, rather elderly, but nevertheless determined voice from somewhere in the crowd, and there was a glimpse of a skinny hand waving a knitting needle. And I shall need a volunteer to escort Mrs. Soups on home, he said. End of CD 10